0: And that's very uncharacteristic of John. John seems to have been aware of the Synoptic Gospels and seems to have kind of intentionally avoided overlap in general. And here he chose to kind of record the same incident. And as we read through the chapter, we'll see why. John is a lot more interested in what the sign of the feeding of the 5,000 points to. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. One of the things that we looked at last time is the crowd's response uh, in a lot of ways, it's very positive. We'll go through that in uh, a, a little bit. They they see Jesus as a Messiah, but they see him as their idea of a Messiah. You know, a, a king that's going to you know, strengthen the nation of Israel and throw out the Romans and you kind of usher in a an age where the Jews uh, you know, have independence, not just independence but dominance in the area. And before we we get in, I'd I'd like to just step back and kind of look at that idea a little bit. One of the things that's easy to forget is that there's 400 years of history that happened from the, the last of the Old Testament books to the, uh, the, the time of Christ, and quite a bit happened in there. Uh, it was a, a very turbulent time. So there was the destruction of the temple and an approximately 70-year exile of the Jewish people. Under Cyrus, they were allowed to return to the homeland, but only a small fraction of those that were exiled returned. The majority of the Jewish people had kind of put down roots and built houses, and were prosperous and were content, and chose not to return to the area. And we'll, we'll see a little bit of that in some of the prophecies that are talking about the Messianic period that we're going to come to. For those that went back, the economy was not great. It was a, kind of a difficult uh, place to live for, for quite a while. Um, and you know, as, as history progressed, Alexander the Great went through. His empire broke up into four. The Seleucids were concentrated to the north of Israel. The Ptolemies occupied Egypt to the south. And the area around Israel was kind of a no-man's land between the two. It traded hands during that period. And so they were constantly being invaded. There was a particularly difficult time that's uh, well-known, especially if you studied the Gospel of Daniel, where uh, Antiochus Epiphanes uh, ruled for a, a period of approximately four years. And his reign was particularly difficult on anyone that wanted to follow God's uh, written word. You weren't allowed to circumcise, you weren't allowed to observe the Sabbath, and many Jews that were, were faithful to what they were commanded to do were martyred, were, were killed during that period. <clears throat> Things were a little bit better under the Romans. The Romans were at least uh, tolerant of uh, the, the practices of, of Judaism, but it was still was still. A difficult time they were occupied there were kind of constant rebellions and you know the Romans put those down very very harshly and so with with kind of that background in mind kind of living as a conquered oppressed people I what I want to do is I want to take us through some of the passages that are kind of recognized as being messianic what I I did to to get this list of passages is I actually went to a Jewish website so this is these are passages that contemporary Jews would consider to be messianic So Isaiah 53, for example, was not on that list. Um, but I I think Christians would agree that these passages are messianic as well. Uh, I'm not going to read all of them. I'm going to try to get highlights to, to show you why there would be an expectation of a Messiah who would be a, a great military leader. There shall come forth from the shoot, uh, from, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, skipping, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. A little bit farther down, we come to a passage that describes a a time of peace. Most of you will be familiar with with this one. It starts with, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and there's kind of additional images of peace and harmony between things that would normally be in conflict. And it it culminates in in verse nine. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Continuing to verse fourteen in the same passage, this is talking about kind of a a united Israel and Ephraim. Uh, These were two groups that did not get along historically, but together they shall swoop from the shoulders of the Philistines, or swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west. And together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath and strike it into seven channels. And he will lead people across in sandals. And there shall be a highway from Assyria um, for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel uh, when they came up from the land of Egypt. And so you, you can certainly see in here... a. a a time of you know uh, what that sounds like kind of military dominance you know the the highway uh, there in part that could be you know people returning from exile but it could also be referring to people kind of congregating in Jerusalem as the knowledge of uh, God goes out. oops and I have not been keeping up. in Zechariah 14:9 this is a complicated section so I just took one verse out of it, and the Lord will be king over all the earth on that day the Lord, will be one, and his name one. But you know that, that passage is also a very uh very easy to read from a militaristic mindset. If you go to Jeremiah, in chapter twenty-three we find a, a messianic section, one of the highlights there is, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and she he shall reign as king, and deal wisely, and shall shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. A little bit later in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 30 is a very messianic passage. And it shall come to pass, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will uh, break his yoke off your neck, and I will burst your bonds, and foreigners shall no longer make a servant of him. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, who, will raise, who I will raise up for them. Later in the passage, I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and will, and, um, I will by no means leave you unpunished. A little bit later, oops, um, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise that I made with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name uh, by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. So uh, you, you can certainly see How someone that had kind of lived through the 400 years of history that the Jewish people had at that point you know if they kind of go to the Old Testament and see all the prophecies these would probably stand out to them and these would be a a hope that they would look forward to this is kind of the 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 expectation that would be there Um, especially regarding this last one I I do want to just really briefly pause and kind of say how Christians should interpret this and certainly the the Reformed uh, interpretation uh, dispensationalists would say that, you know, well, this must happen around Christ's second coming. But you know, I think uh, a Reformed theologian would say that what, what's occurred with Christ's first coming covers it. And one place that you could go to to, uh, to point to that is, is Hebrews. This is a magnificent section. I'd love to just read all of it because it's so glorious. I'm going to give us a few highlights of it. Um, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. But you have come, and I wanted to emphasize that this is a present reality, you you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Skipping down just a little bit to a key verse. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And so, Reformed theologians see these as pointing to the spiritual kingdom, the heavenly, the, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus Christ inaugurated, the one that's already and not yet, that we have received. Um, but, I, I, uh, I, I want to. We, we've got the benefit of hindsight, we, and not just the benefit of hindsight, but the, we've got the benefit of some really gifted and brilliant theologians that have gone through this and and really uh, unpacked it. Uh, so, it, it's I think very easy to see how someone living in the circumstances of the, of the first century Jews would have seen you know, what the crowd was kind of expecting uh, Jesus to be. In fact. Uh, A major part of the reason that the Pharisees were so strict in obeying the law is that there was a widespread belief that by obeying the law sufficiently well that that would actually prompt the age of the Messiah. Um, It's easy to see how many messianic promises could be seen as uh, being fulfilled in a military leader that would drive out the Romans and establish Israel as a free and independent world power at, at a very minimum, or as the dominant power beyond what Rome was at that time. So, Jesus comes along. He teaches with authority. He performs great signs, and he's reminded the people of what Moses has just done by providing manna in the wilderness, although it was God that provided the manna, not Moses. So the most natural way of reading the response of the crowd is that they believe Jesus to be the Messiah, and there's there's a lot that's admirable in the way that the crowd responds to Jesus from a human standpoint. They followed him out in the wilderness. That's not easy in the first century and there's at least an element of trust there you know, you know, wilderness is a place that does not have enough resources to, to sustain human life um, they, they see significance in Jesus they accept that he's at least a major figure from God the possibly the prophet not a prophet but the prophet that was uh, pointed to by Moses uh, or, or even the Messiah and once they learned that Jesus left the region they're following him so what's missing so with, with hindsight, we can see that the crowd's understanding of the prophecies uh, concerning the Messiah was wrong. Um, but you know, from a human san- standpoint, I, I think this is understandable, at least to an extent. You know, I don't think that I have all my eschatological ducks in a row, and I certainly hope that I don't need to, uh, to be saved. So I don't, I don't think that the crowd's incorrect eschatology is, is the, the problem. think that the most reasonable answer um, is that the crowd was completely blind to its spiritual need for salvation they didn't see themselves as helpless sinners that are facing judgment from a purchase, perfectly righteous and perfectly just god if they did rome wouldn't be all that big of an issue to them um, if we if we recognize this need everything else pales in comparison without seeing their need for a deliverer from bondage to sin The crowd was focused on the hopes of improvement in this life. Abundant food and deliverance from Rome. The need to come and see uh, Jesus to meet their deepest and most... They they needed to come and see Jesus to meet their deepest and most urgent need. They needed to recognize that need, but they're blind to it. And Jesus is not going to let them remain in that state. Um, If they understood the scriptures better, they uh, would see in Jesus a new and greater Moses. Um, So John here is kind of emphasizing the the connection uh, to the book of Exodus. So we we um, looked at these last time, so I'll just go through this really quickly. The people of God kind of moved from civilization, that was Egypt, to, to the wilderness. They're moving you know, out into the wilderness to listen to Jesus. The people were in bondage in, in Egypt uh, or to, to, to Egypt in the, the Exodus and to sin in the present time. God provides leadership, either Moses or Jesus. God provides for his people and he meets their needs in the wilderness. And you know, Jesus and the crowds even cross a sea to, to kind of get there, and Jesus went up on a mountain, which is a very clear kind of you know, parallel to Moses going up to Mount Sinai in the Exodus. So John is, is emphasizing all these points of similarity to help us to see that Jesus is the re- reality that Moses points to as a type in the Old Testament. Moses delivered God's people from bondage in, in Egypt. Jesus is here to deliver God's people from bondage to sin, condemnation and from separation from God. As the Israelites were sustained physically in the desert by God's provision of manna, God's people are spiritually sustained by provision now. So let's reread the exchange that's called the Bread of Life Discourse, and then we're going to pick up at at verse uh, 28. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, why did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, What sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said this, uh, then they said to him, sir, the man in the wilderness and they died this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that so that one uh, may eat of it and not die i am the living bread that came down from heaven if anyone eats this bread he will live forever and the bread that i will give him is for the life um, and the bread that i will give for for the life of the world is my flesh the jews then disputed among themselves saying how can this man give us his flesh to eat so jesus said to them he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things as he taught in the uh, taught in the synagogue in Capernaum. So we're going to go back to verse 28. What must we do be, uh, to be doing the works of God? And you know, kind of a question that kind of comes up is... You know, um, see. Why, why does that come up? You, Jesus just told them not to work for food, uh, which is kind of what they're presently laboring for, but to work uh, for some different sort of food that endures for eternal life. And works of God, uh, that, that's a phrase that's used in Jewish writings to refer to trying to keep the law. So I think, think they're kind of asking, how do we keep the law properly? If they had listened to Jesus back in verse twenty-seven, which let me go ahead and put it up, (coughs) they they should have interpreted that. um, Should they have interpreted? Should they have interpreted Jesus as telling them to work in the first place? And I would say no. Work is is certainly in that verse. You know, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life. But then Jesus qualifies that. That's not really work. That's the Son of Man giving it to them. And that's what they should have understood, but it's interesting that they really seize on work and not on uh, the gift that Jesus is offering. So the, the crowd then asks, why does Jesus, Or um, to, the crowd then asks Jesus to provide another sign. Um, why does Jesus not provide another sign to authenticate who he is? And I, I think the, there's a few ways that we could answer that. I think all of these are, are, are good. One of them is that, Signs just do not work in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus' previous miracle was ineffective at producing faith. Uh, It it got results. The crowd was excited, but it didn't see Jesus as able to offer uh, salvation, uh, spiritual bread. They they simply saw him as a military leader that could throw out the Romans, and and nothing more important than that. Uh, Jesus would be kind of feeding into the crowd's perception that he's a political messiah that's seeking to restore a physical kingdom. And finally, Jesus will not be controlled. He does not do miracles on sign or on request. Uh, Jesus is always in control of, of the situation. Uh, so Jesus sa- says, My Father gives you the true bread from heaven. What's, what's he trying to communicate there? And I, I think the idea is, is that Jesus' point is that the sign of man in the, in the Exodus account is a picture of God providing for his people's needs. Jesus is expanding this picture beyond merely providing them with literal food, but also supplying them with the spiritual food that they need to to sustain spiritual life. In fact, not only is Jesus going to provide that food, Jesus is that food. He's the reality to which the type of the manna and the type of the bread in the sign of the feeding of the 5,000 point. Jesus is also trying to direct them away from signs like miracles to the, the more important sign in redemptive history, the, the bread, the spiritual nourishment that God the Father gave from heaven that provided spiritual life um, in the way that uh, physical bread sustains physical life. Up till now, Jesus has urged the crowd not to pursue physical bread. This probably doesn't refer to actual food or to impressive miracles, although it includes them, but it uh, refers to seeking a physical kingdom. Um, and uh, um, kind of a, you know, a lesser calling of the Messiah, uh, a Messiah that's just going to give Jews a physical kingdom. I like think that um, that that's what J- Jesus is really getting after there. So now we come to the first of the I am statements in the Gospel of John. Jesus said to them, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst." I should probably stop here and point out that. As you would expect in John, there are seven I am statements. There's seven signs, there are seven I am statements. Things of importance very frequently come in sevens in in John's writings, that would include the revelation as well. Uh, And this is the first of them. It's kind of interesting that it's happening as the miracles or the signs uh, were were a good chunk of the way through them. Um, We only have two uh, signs remaining after this if, if memory serves correctly. And so now we're coming to the, the first of the I am statements. You might recognize, of course, that the construction I am, uh, Jesus is wording that in the same way that the Greek translation of the New Testament translates God's name in the Exodus, I am. So there, there probably is a significance to the I am. There, there's a little bit of argument among scholars on that one, but it, it seems reasonable to me that, you know, that, that, that that is at least a subtle claim of divinity right there. And I've given you the locations of the others if uh, you're interested in looking at those. So, uh, going back to the the statement, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Is Jesus saying that all believers are immune to hunger and thirst? Well, yes, I I think he is in a spiritual sense. Uh, We have, through Jesus Christ, everything that we need to sustain sustain spiritual life, uh, real life. Now, we know in history that uh, many believers haven't always had enough to eat and always haven't had enough to drink. Their physical needs are not always met for. So what sort of encouragement do we have when we face real physical adversity? And I would say that we could look at this and say that if God has sent Jesus Christ, paid the penalty for our sins, done everything to give us this spiritual life, to give us this bread of life that that Jesus is, we can be confident in his goodness and that whatever circumstances we're facing, he's in control of and he will work for good for for those who love him. Um, Another thing that I, I think is kind of worth pointing out here is that if we knew our old testaments well you know, this statement about jesus being the bread of life would probably bring up some of the uh, passages about the abundance in the messianic age i'm not going to put this up but just listen to isaiah describing the messianic age in isaiah 55. come everyone who thirsts come to the waters and he who has no money come buy and eat come buy wine and milk without money and without price why do you spend your money for that which is not bread And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligent to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. And I think Jesus is the reality that Isaiah is pointing to right there, and in in many other messianic passages in the Old Testament as well. I know I keep coming to these, but the the more that I I see about Jesus in the Gospels, the the more um, beautiful these Old Testament passages become. And I'd I'd like you to, to 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 be able to see that. So another question is how verse 35 and verse 36 works together. So, I am the bread of life, but I said to you that you have seen me and do not believe. So Jesus is the reality that the manna and the feeding of the 5000 both point into. He's desperately trying to help them see that reality. Almost comically they can't get their minds off physical food. Even though we can understand that they are probably focused on the hope of the Messiah, the one that's going to overthrow the Romans. You know, they might as well just be concerned about uh, bread and not just any bread rye bread which is not a particularly uh, good form of bread in, in that day they're they're completely bl- blind to their spiritual need and they're completely blind to spiritual reality and it's it's particularly ironic if they understood uh, exodus they they would realize that I'm going to put up deuteronomy 8 three um, that the point of of this verse is that the man is pointing to a greater reality, being sustained by God, and that's that's clear in the Old Testament. It's something that they should have understood. Um, and he humbled you, and let you hunger and feed, uh, and fed you with the manna, which you did not know, uh, nor did your fathers know, that you might uh, that he might make you known uh, that he might make you know that the Lord does not live by bread alone. But um, sorry, that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Moses tried to, uh, or had to explain at the end of the wilderness wonderings that the provisions of the man appointed pointed to something far more important. Uh, and the crowds uh, that are following Jesus didn't see that any better than the, the crowds in the wilderness. Next up, we're going to kind of look at 37 through 40. These are verses that a synergist, a synergist would be another name for that is semi-pelagian or arminian uh, someone that believes that god contributes something to towards our salvation and we also contribute something for it so synergy is kind of working together to achieve salvation um these verses are particularly difficult uh for them if you were to talk to an arminian the the likely response that you would get is that you know, if you Take these verses at face value. It sounds like Jesus is kind of rubbing the crowd's nose in it. You're not elect. Nothing you can do about it. Um, nothing's going to change that. And if if that's how we would have to read these, I think that's that's a valid argument. So we, we do need to see something more to why Jesus is bringing this up. He's he's very clearly trying to help the crowd see the reality of, of who he is. Um, so... What we need to do is we need to look at these verses try to understand the flow of the argument and you kind of ask ourselves uh why jesus would bring up monergistic regeneration or what we might call calvinism um right after uh his his statement about being the bread of life and I, i think jesus who we all know of course was a good monergist was uh using means to draw his sheep out of the crowd you know He's promising to perfectly care for those who come and who choose to feed on him. The crowd is not overtly rejecting Judaism, not re- overtly rejecting G- uh, Jesus. They see themselves as Jews. They think that because of their heritage, because of their um, keeping of what they think is an acceptable adherence to the law, that they're entitled to good standing with God for being Jews and for being kind of sort of approximately keeping the law. They even see Jesus as Jesus a good teacher and prophet, perhaps the Messiah, but they don't see him as their only hope for salvation. Jesus is attacking that confidence. He's saying that if they do not come to him, they're rejecting God, and they're showing themselves not to be God's people. Unless they open their eyes and embrace him as true spiritual food, they don't belong to God in the first place. This is an unthinkable concept to a first century Jew, but it's something that Jesus needs to get across to them for them to see their need for him and for them to come to him for salvation. He's breaking down false assurance. So there's no reason to accept these words. At, um, so there's no reason not to accept these words at face value. Um, and I think the the only reason not to kind of take this at face value is it's really devastating to any theology that's synergistic. <clears throat> so in, in this, I, I wanted to... Uh look at uh, 37 and whoever comes to me I will never cast out uh, It's a, a fairly reasonable translation but uh, the the meaning is difficult to see without a little bit of help and so I, I'm gonna call in D.A. Carson to give us some help here uh, I'm gonna read from this and from his commentary the second part of this verse is frequently misunderstood formerly it is a latotes a figure of speech in which something is affirmed by negating the contrary. So, a citizen of no mean city means a citizen of a rather important city. When Jesus says that whoever comes to, to me, I will never drive away, the affirmative that he's expressing uh, in this fashion is often taken to mean whoever comes to me, I will certainly welcome. The second part of the verse then becomes a softening of the predestin- predestinarianism uh, in the first part. But in fact, the affirmation expressed by this latodes is rather different. Whoever comes to me, I will certainly keep in, or preserve. Um, And so let me uh, kind of put in a paraphrase up there to kind of help see what is probably meant here in in context. Yes, Mark? I just want to interject here as we're talking about Jesus. Not many people
1: really grasp the that Jesus has two points. He has two natures, a fine nature, a human nature, and mm-hmm. each of those natures has its own will. And that has been a big
0: argument for the years and people talking about who Jesus is. And it's, okay. If you look into it, I mean, it's, it's right there in front of you. But a lot of people yeah. use that as a test you believe Jesus has two wills. Mm. Yes, we do. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I just... Okay. Yeah, I, I I hadn't heard that about Jesus. I, I know that there's two ways that God, God's will is revealed. For example, God's will is that you not crucify the Son of God. That's expressed in the law. And so it, you know, those who participated in Jesus' crucifixion were violating God's revealed will. And yet the scriptures are equally clear that it was the will of God that what happened to Jesus would happen to bring salvation. So, but yeah, in in Jesus, is, is, is that kind of the same thing or is there... Um, more to so, it there.
1: You know, we were talking a couple weeks ago about how the Son, or the Word, let's call him the Word, just to okay, Distinguish between this the statues. God has one will, mm-hmm. the Father has a will which is the same as the Word, which is the same as the Spirit. Mm-hmm. That's one will.
0: Mm-hmm. The
1: Son, who is the incarnate. Has a will, a human will. This is why we see some of these statements. I do the will of my Father. This is where that subordination of the Son and that's where that comes from. Mm-hmm. But the point is, I'm sorry to you take your no.
0: No, this is this is fascinating.
1: Christ has two wills. He has a divine will. Mm-hmm. This divine by nature human world, this human nature, so this is it it's a, part of the mystery. With the contrast in the environment, he wants to come to pass. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, he was a okay. true human. Mm-hmm. He was truly God. Okay. You can't wrap the mm-hmm. mind around it, but it's, those mm-hmm. verses right there really kind of expose who he was. I mean, he's truly, truly God and truly man.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, let me let me try to get through this. The flow of the verse is then as follows. I'm I'm still quoting from D. A. Carson. All that, and th- this is a singular neuter that's used to refer to the the collective elect. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> sorry, I lost my spot. Um, all that uh, the the Father gives to Jesus as the gift to the Son will will surely come to him. And whoever, in fact, comes by virtue of being given by the Father to the Son, Jesus undertakes to keep, to pers- to preserve. The second part of this verse moves in the uh, moves from the collective whole to the individual and from the actual coming, consequent on being part of the gift, to preservation. This interpretation is suggested uh, by a specific Greek-, Greek verb that I won't try to pronounce in front of Tim. Uh, drive away or cast out. Um, in almost all of its parallel occurrences, it's uh, presupposed uh, that what is driven out or cast away is already in. Um, I will never drive away; therefore, means I will certainly keep in. This this interpretation, however, uh, strongly supported by the the verb, is required by the context. It's required by the next three verses. How does the four in verse thirty eight connect with verse thirty seven? And so, if we read you know, not drive out to be. Uh, we'll keep those who come to me in, and so I've just modified it to make it a little bit easier to read. Um, then the connection makes much better sense. God's will is that Jesus will lose none of uh, none that the Father has given to him, and Jesus perfectly obeys the Father's will. Since Jesus is on the subject of Calvinism, he might as well also deal with the perseverance of the saints here. Um, so, what's the the flow of Jesus' argument? I'm the bread of life. That, that, that's kind of the, the initial statement. Whoever comes and believes will not hunger or thirst. Um, they have seen him and they won't believe. If, uh, if they were the fathers, they would come. Therefore, while they think that they're, they're God's chosen people and that they're willing um, and that they're you know, enthusiastically following God, they are in fact demonstrating themselves not to be God's elect here. Uh, when, whenever this comes up, I think it is important to you know, kind of ask some questions. Should, should the idea of election lead to fatalism? You know, I'm either chosen by God or I'm not. There's nothing I can do about that, so might as well just do whatever I want and whatever God chose is going to happen anyway. And that, that certainly isn't the case. In fact, you know, taking that attitude would probably show you not to be elect. You, and, and Jesus isn't acting that way at all. He's, he's trying to help this crowd to just to see him and to come to him in faith and to show themselves to be elect. Um, this ignores human responsibility, and that's uh, clearly taught you know equally in the scriptures. It, it doesn't mean that we're not to obey God's call, but when we hear God's call and respond in faith, we're to realize that it's not because of intrinsic goodness or merit in us that we responded, but it's God's mercy enabling us to respond. Those who reject God's call are, kept, are not kept from responding, but they're freely choosing to reject God. We see this in the persistence of Jesus with the crowds, trying to get them to see past the miracle to the true food that he's offering to them. Um, Jesus is about to be rejected, not only by the entire crowd that's listening to him, at least the majority of them, um, and who who saw these signs, but he's also going to be rejected by many of his disciples. These aren't the 12. This is kind of a larger group of disciples that are following him. Uh, And the majority of them are going to leave at this point. How do these verses help us to understand that Jesus' ministry isn't a failure? Um, and I, I think one thing that's uh, worth, let's see, Jesus is teaching that you know, all, are, all who are given to him are accepting the message. Um, the coming rejection, not only of the crowd, but also of some of the uh, disciples that, that fall away, isn't a failure. It's simply uh, showing what God's uh, w- will was in terms of who he gave and who he didn't finally i think i've dealt with this before but you being reminded of god's sovereignty and salvation should be a comfort when we share the gospel so not even jesus was able to at that time at least draw most of these people to himself the majority of the crowd at that time and even disciples rejected him Um, we can only present the gospel reception ultimately does not depend on the quality of our presentation it depends on the work of the holy spirit This is probably a a good stopping spot. I know we're maybe a couple minutes early, but one of the things I I did want to mention is my my wife's accident. uh, She can't put any weight on her left arm for two months and no weight on her left leg for three months. And so she's going to be either in bed or in a wheelchair for two months, and she'll be on crutches for another month after that. So there's just going to be a lot. The church has been wonderful in helping out. I'm extremely grateful for just outpouring of the support, uh, both practical and, and prayer. Um, but we're just going to have a, a very busy three months, and so I've kind of asked to take about three months off. It might be longer than that, just sort of depending on her recovery. Um, and uh, I'll, I, I very much plan to finish the Gospel of John. Hopefully that will start in something like three months, uh, but you know, that, that'll kind of depend on scheduling of other series and, uh, and kind of basically when things get back to normal enough that I can take some time during the week to, to, to be able to write these. So apologize for not being able to complete, but thank you very much for all the support that I've had. And we do have three or four minutes if there's a quick question or two. More on the text than you know, anything with Katie specifically.
1: <laughs> yeah. Literalistic uh, expressions of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Why? Why is it that God would, uh, would choose that you know method to
0: reveal? Uh, to I was racking my brain on that. Um, you know, there's there's a question along those lines. I was also thinking about one of the uh, the the obstacles that the crowds faced to accepting Jesus. Jesus is presenting himself as God, and the Old Testament is so monotheistic and the mindset of the Jews in the first century was so monotheistic that the idea of God in three persons was very difficult to accept, incredibly difficult to accept. Um, and it, it is. You know, we have an easier time with it, I think, than a first century Jew would, though. Um, in, a, in a sense, you know, the, the, there's, there's still elements of Christianity in our culture, and so we're kind of brought up uh, with the you know, trinity in, in sunday school and we, you, we've heard it you someone that has studied the scripture and is you know a monotheist in a polytheistic world um had, had a very difficult time accepting that and there, it's kind of the same as the reason i brought that up is it's kind of the same thing as your question there's these pictures of you know a, a strong leader coming in and you're know, delivering the people um and it would be easy for them to kind of latch on to that and you know, be willing to accept just a really good leader that you know, puts the Jews on top and not deliverance from sin. Um, and I I didn't go back to the Old Testament commentaries on these and preparing that. So I, I haven't read the commentaries on the, the Old Testament passages that I looked at. But, um, yes? Yeah
1: Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. So in our Ephesians study, we looked at the idea of the mystery. And that's specifically the mystery of the Gentiles be heirs of the promise. But wrapped up in that is that the necessity of spiritualizing or extending some of these Old Testament promises. And God purposely kept that mystery. He concealed that. So, I mean, I'm not saying they're not responsible. And they should have seen these promises. They should have known more than they did. But there was also an intent by God to... To withhold that
0: revelation until now, mm-hmm. In the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, but it, as to why, why, why not make it a little bit easier to to see it when it comes? I, I'm not sure. But those that God is going to open their spiritual eyes to help them to see it will see it, um, which which is as as, as as true now as it was then. Oh, Differently, Father, we just we thank you for being true bread and, and true drink. We thank you that. You've done something far greater than we even could think to ask by delivering us from our sins uh, rather than simply uh, come and accommodate whatever far lesser needs we think uh, are important. Thank you for sending Jesus Christ. Thank you for the, the picture of yourself that's revealed in this gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.